I'm going to continue. This is part three of my series entitled Our Signs. We've looked at four of the signs so far. Can anybody quickly tell me what the four signs have been that we've shared so far? Baptism of the Holy Spirit, joy, boldness, speaking in other tongues, glory to God. One, two, three, four, today, boy, we're going to cover some ground, hallelujah, five, six, and seven, angels, miracles, and laying on of hands, angels, miracles, laying on of hands, signs number five, six, and seven, Psalm 74 and verse nine. We do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet. There's none among us who knows how long. The prophet in the Old Testament was lamenting that those unique signs that, that set Israel apart as God's supernaturally selected people, people of the covenant, were not, were not visible among them. They were just like every other nation, ordinary, just as everybody else was. And he says, we don't see our signs and nobody seems to be able to prophesy or speak to us from the Lord and tell us what's going on or how long it's going to last. Well, this condition should not be occurring in the body of Christ. Can I say to you today that the church in the book of Acts, the first Christians, the early Christian church, that church came with signs. Many signs that that church came with that were indicators that God was in the house. And these signs told the world who we are. Praise the Lord. And so in Psalm 74, the writer's lamenting because he sees that the signs have been stripped away from the people of God. So those unique indicators that God's presence was with them were no longer evident. And so without the presence of their signs, Israel just was adrift in confusion and they were perilous in peril of losing their unique identity among the nations. So we need to remember today as the body of Christ, 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a people of God's own possession so that you may show forth. Everyone say, show forth. So that you may show, you have been chosen so that you may show forth the excellencies, the virtues can I say you've been chosen that you may show forth the signs of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're going to take a look at sign number five right now, which is angels. Angels. Hallelujah. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27, it says, For the Son of Man, Jesus, shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Now I did a a brief look through the scripture of all the references to angels. And one of the things I noticed that almost without fail, most of the time, there was this personal pronoun that preceded the word angels, and it was his angels. His angels, showing that the angels of heaven are the possession specifically of Jesus Christ. His angels. I, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time, and I've always known they were the angels of God. But I guess in my mind, I'd always sort of thought, well, they're the angels of God because they're beings that God created, and, you know, they're in heaven, so they're the angels of God. But I saw this in a little stronger sense. I saw it that they are the personal servants of Jesus Christ. 
The myriad, the multitude, we don't know how many, but there's a lot of angels belong to Jesus. And they, the angels feel that way. They've, they cling to Jesus. They are his. They are his possession. They exist and live to serve Jesus. They are his angels. And so it says that when he comes in the glory of his Father, he will come with his angels. Hallelujah. Let me say to you that when we're studying the sign of angels in the New Testament, that at the incarnation of Jesus Christ, when he became flesh, the angels came with their Lord into the world to do him service while he was here. They announced his arrival. The heavens opened, the angels announced his arrival. Then during his temptation in the wilderness of fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and then again, his agony in the garden, it was the angels that came and helped him and ministered to him and strengthened him. At his resurrection, it was the angels that announced his resurrection and his ascension to the people that came to the tomb. It was the angels that rolled the stone away and the angels that announced what had happened. They were his servants. They were his, his helpers. And now, his angels are assisting we, his people, ministering on his behalf to us, on loan, serving him. So they are assisting us, continuing to serve him. It's the angels that will bear our souls into paradise when we die and pass away. And... The angels will be the ministers of judgment on that last great day. One of, these, one of these things that I find particularly um, encouraging is that Jesus' servants, the angels, don't think that it's below their dignity to minister to the very least of us, even to children and bring deliverance and help and encouragement out of trouble because they see us through his eyes. And so they are happy and don't feel that it's beneath them to serve us as they served him. In Acts chapter 5, there's an example of the ministry of the angels. And it says in verse 18, 19, and 20, that the religious leaders laid their hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. And during the night, an angel of the Lord. Notice the phrase, an angel of the Lord. Pretty obvious if you see an angel, you would assume it's of the Lord. But still, the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the Bible to constantly reinforce the idea, an angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord. The angels never show independence. They never ever show up in some sort of independent action. They are not free to interact or relate with us at their will. There is no fellowship with angels. The angels only have fellowship with the Lord. They are the angels that belong to the Lord. They are the angels of the Lord. They serve Him. They're not available to us for conversation or for seeking or any of those other things. The Bible says that 
when the apostles were beaten and locked in the jail, that during the night an angel, one, it only take, took one, hallelujah, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, said to them, go and stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. There were a couple of places in Acts where angels affected a jailbreak. One time for Peter and he thought he was dreaming until the cool air hit his face and he was out of the jail and realized several times these things happened. P Peter, in this instance, with the apostles in this early arrest, later with Paul and Silas. Philip the evangelist was visited by an angel directing him to go down to the desert area south of Jerusalem called Gaza, where he would meet an Ethiopian official and lead him to Jesus. And the story that's found in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. But, and again, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem down to Gaza, this desert road. So he got up and he went and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, and the Lord spoke to him and said, join this chariot. And, and he got up in the chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch. He shared with him the gospel reading out of Isaiah. And the man received Jesus and was baptized. And then when it was all done, the Holy Spirit just caught Philip away and moved him and dropped him in some city somewhere. But that whole thing took place because an angel told Philip to do it. Now, if you think about it, Philip is not going to wander out of the city of Jerusalem and start walking through the southern desert. You can't imagine what it is like. And back in those days, there not being much more than just a, a probably a, a, a trodden path through the desert. So God sent an angel so that he would know this is God. I'm, I'm sure that were it not an angel, if he had an inkling or some sense from the Holy Spirit, go down to Gaza, he wouldn't have done it. He said, well, this can't be God. <laughs> so when necessary, God sends angels. When the apostle Paul had been arrested and was transported by ship to stand trial before Caesar, and he was on his way to Rome going through the Mediterranean Sea, the ship fell into the grip of a horrible storm. It's hard for me to imagine, but this storm lasted 14 days. 14 days, and, and during that time, they had thrown the tackle overboard. They had uh, offloaded a lot of the goods trying to lighten the ship. And after 14 days, they were about to kill Paul and the prisoners because they knew they were going to be swamped, and the boat would capsize, and rather than the prisoners escaping, and them getting into trouble, they figured we'll just kill them. And that night, an angel of the Lord came and appeared to Paul and spoke to him. And we have the account of it in Acts chapter 27. The next morning, he speaks to the men on this rolling pitching ship as the storm is threatening to break the ship apart. And he says to them, For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. I love that phrase. An angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. In the mind, he's speaking to Romans who have a sense of authority and a sense of ownership about everything. The empire belonged to the emperor. 
And then everyone from the emperor was given degrees of authority and whatever was under them belonged to their authority. And so he made sure these men understood the God who I serve that I belong to sent one of his angelic servants to me. And he stood before me this night and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. It did happen exactly as he had been told. The ship was shipwrecked and broke apart, but not a single soul was lost. Amazingly, all of them survived. Everyone, and there was a couple hundred, I believe, uh, around, that, around that ballpark. Everyone, the prisoners, the sailors, the Roman centurion, and all the Roman soldiers, all survived. And for the rest of their lives, they'll remember on that 14th day, when the man of God, who they call the Apostle Paul, said an angel came and spoke to me this night. All of them knew they were about to die. The ones that couldn't swim were certain to die. They knew the ship was going to fall apart. It was evident after 14 days. There was no question about it. They knew that report for the rest of their life that God had sent an angel and spoke. And the words of the angel came to pass. Let me just say to you that in every New Testament case of angelic visitation, there was substantial fruit that made itself evident for the glory of Jesus Christ. And quickly, none of these angelic visitations happened um, to validate the reputation of some flaky evangelist that was trying to impress spiritually unstable people spiritually vulnerable people. And the scripture um, in Colossians warns us, let no one, Colossians 2.18, let no one who delights in humility and the worship of angels pass judgment on you. That person goes on at great lengths about what he has supposedly seen and he is puffed up with empty notions by his fleshly mind. So they had those people back then that we've got today. Have you ever met them or heard about them or read about some of them, you know, in some of these revivals that, quote, get a little bit out of hand? There was the one over in Lakeland not too many years ago, and the guy that was running it, he was having tea and crumpets with the angels every day. It was just, when I, when I heard that, I knew the whole thing had gone off the rails. You know, and he was calling them by name and they were hanging out and associating together. And so, right here in the scriptures in Colossians makes it absolutely clear that God clearly condemns seeking after and worshiping angels. So I say that to you so that you understand. I want to encourage you. This sign is really different because the angels and their visitation belong completely and entirely to God. These angelic interventions are always ordered by God. Nowhere in the Bible is there an indication that you and I should ever ask for angel visitations, that we should ever direct angels. We don't have the authority. There is no connection that we have whatsoever with angels. You can't speak to angels. You can't command them. You cannot direct them. In fact, the Bible says that those that do that 
are simply trying to entice spiritually unstable people by making them feel like I'm special and I'm spiritual because I have angels um, at my beck and call. And he says, these people are puffed up and empty-minded. Don't pay any attention to them. However, that's not to diminish the ministry of angels. I could stand up here and tell you that I've never seen an angel, but I don't know that I can really say that. I don't know if I've ever seen an angel other than the one I married. But, <laughs> but, um, and there's been a time or two when she swung for the other team, too, so I don't, <laughs> but I have, uh, I, I may have seen an angel, I don't know. There were people over the years that have claimed to see angelic visitations in some of our services. I couldn't say whether that actually happened or didn't happen. Don't know. Because <clears throat> we are not to follow, seek, or ask for angels. But just know that God has a huge supply of angelic servants. He is well equipped to cover every situation. And I don't care how many the devil brings, God's got more. In fact, when Jesus ascended up into heaven, it, the Bible says it was the angels that made war and cast the devil out. And it, I'm sure it wasn't much of a fight. I doubt there were any casualties on the Lord's side. So, I just want to let you know that, that angels are working and moving. And sometimes they manifest. Sometimes they speak to us. They come at times when there's no other way. And God wants to make certain that we hear what he is going to say. Every time there was an angelic visitation, something very significant, very substantial, very um, identifiable and absolute took place. Um, you don't see any manifestations in the book of Acts or in the New Testament where angels came and they just had these kind of, you know, spiritual conversations with so-and-so and nobody really knows what it was about and other than the fact that it just seems to have endorsed this person. The angels don't show up to endorse anybody. They're his angels. Hallelujah. But when they come, stuff happens. <coughs> Hallelujah. And 99.99% of the time, we're absolutely unaware of them. Glory to God. We are not knowing that they're here, but they're operating. Praise the Lord. That just blesses me to know that, hallelujah, God's got the bases covered. Number six is the sign of miracles. Everyone say miracles. There's so much confusion and mystery surrounding miracles. But I hope with just the next few words that I can open up with you, not only some understanding about miracles, but more importantly, God wants to work miracles through you. God wants to bring miracles through you. And so I hope the things that I'm about to say to you will open up an avenue of faith and openness and encouragement so that God could could get the credit that he deserves as miracles. His calling card are shown to the world through you and I. The sign of miracles in Acts covered all kinds of things. Healings, 
raising of the dead, deliverance from demonic oppression, release from prison on several occasions. Sometimes these miracles came in the form of judgments that fell upon the wicked, Ananias and Sapphira, who dropped dead at the rebuke of Peter, the sorcerer, who the apostle Paul commanded to be made blind because he was interfering with leading the mayor of the city to the Lord. Demons, as I said, were cast out. Even that wonderful little miracle at the end of the story, I think it was in the 27th or 28th chapter of the book of Acts, where a, a poisonous serpent bites the apostle Paul and holds on. I mean, I watch some of those animal shows, and the snakes go, this one held on. I don't know what it was doing, but it was hanging on there, just releasing its venom into Paul. The Bible says he shook it off into the fire. And all the people on that island where he was shipwrecked, where this had happened, were watching. And they, st they started watching because they knew, well, he's going to fall over dead now because the serpent got him. But the Bible says he didn't fall over dead. And when they noticed that he didn't fall over dead, then they started worshiping him as a god. And he said, no, 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 close, but no. I'm not a God, I'm a servant of God. And he told them about Jesus. Hallelujah, and that was wonderful. So the miracles, the gifts of working of miracles, the sign of miracles, really are just the, the supernatural suspension of natural laws for God to do great acts, great works. Those are miracles. Um, and let me, let me, try to demystify what causes miracles and say to you this, the freshness of Jesus in the hearts made fertile ground for miracles in the lives of the early Christians in the book of Acts. Just kind of get your mind around that as a foundation for why miracles occurred. It was the freshness of Jesus in the hearts of the believers that made a fertile atmosphere, fertile ground for miracles to work. Never blame God for the lack of miracles. Miracles are not arbitrary. I know that we're always trying to figure out how can I pray for a miracle and see it happen. We need to see miracles. We want to see miracles. What, what is it that needs to happen? And so the tendency is, because you and I cannot create miracles, you and I are not the ones that make miracles happen, yet miracles do, if I could just use this word very cautiously, miracles do involve and somewhat depend upon us. And so what I want to do is share with you, even though we know that God is the one who works miracles, and miracles for God are just natural things. But miracles, and, and as you study it in the scripture, miracles happen in certain environments. And you should know what that environment involves. They're not arbitrary. They're not mysterious. Miracles just don't happen throughout history at arbitrary times. There are patterns uh, that can be observed and understood. Instead of being arbitrary, miracles occur in connection with God's people exercising faith and obedience in the mission that he has given us. 
Miracles occur through God's people as they exercise faith and obedience in the mission that He's given them. Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. And Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person, and these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name, and He says, They'll cast out uh, devils, speak with new tongues, take up serpents. Paul did that, didn't he? Um, uh, any deadly thing they drink, it will not harm them. <clears throat> Lay hands on the sick, they shall recover. And the Lord named just a few of the areas where they could expect to see miracles. In John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus said, The works that I do, greater shall you do, because I go to the Father. Now, people have said, well, the greater work is leading people to Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'd say that's great. But Jesus didn't say, you'll do greater works. He said, you'll do the works that I do, and greater. He didn't say, you're just going to lead people to Jesus. He said, you're going to do what I did, and greater. So, the fact is that Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, and these signs will follow you as you believe. There's definitely conditions that we follow that open the door for an environment that will allow God to move in miracles among us. And I want to just share three of those things. Number one, go. Miracles happen to those people who obey God and go. Go into all the world, Jesus said. Preach the gospel to every person and these signs will follow. The signs aren't going to follow people who will not go. Now, what going is to you may not be the same as what going is to someone else, but for each and every one of us, we are to go into the world. It may be the getting out of bed in the morning and going into your office or going among your family, going wherever you do go. You need to be sent. Let yourself be one that is sent. We're not going to see miracles in the church until we live like sent people. Go into the world. And preach the gospel to every person, not just the people that you like or the people that you think will listen to you, but every person, these signs will follow. The signs follow. Miracles follow. So there's, there's definitely no sense in us blaming God for the lack of miracles. He has given us specific things to do. Another example is that Philip... When Philip in Acts chapter 8 went down to the city of Samaria, to the Samaritans who were hated, the Jews had, had a whole history of being prejudiced against the Samaritans. Yet he goes down and preaches the good news of Jesus, that Jesus had died and risen for them. And miracles took place. You read about it in Acts chapter 8 where it says, And the people with one accord gave heed to those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voices, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many that were taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. There was great joy in that city. Now, Philip didn't go down to Samaria because he was an evangelist. Philip went down to Samaria and found out he was an evangelist. In fact, Philip went down to Samaria because he was driven out of the city of Jerusalem by persecution. 
The Bible says great persecution against the church arose and Philip went down to Samaria. It's amazing, but Philip probably wouldn't have gone to Samaria. And why Samaria? The Jews hated the Samaritans. So he was driven out by persecution. Think of it as difficulty, harshness, misfortune, bad things happening, whatever. So he didn't run out of Jerusalem and uh, go rent a room in the Days Inn, uh, you know, down in Capernaum or somewhere that might have been friendly territory. Why does he go to Samaria where he wouldn't have been trusted or welcomed, but he goes anyway because the love of Jesus is in his heart and he's feeling that sense of mission. The only thing that explains why he went to Samaria was the gospel beating in his heart. Take the gospel to these people. The first thing that he overcomes is his own prejudice and he goes and he shares the love of God and the Bible says signs and wonders follow. Miracles occurred and so the scripture says seeing the miracles they gave heed to the things he was saying and the whole city had a revival broke out in joy. Somebody say praise the Lord. So first of all the Bible says go, go into all the world. The second thing I would say to you, if you want to have an environment for miracles happening in your life, is stay full. Everyone say full. Stay full. That's, this is probably one of the most important things I'll say to you this morning. Half full Christians never see miracles. Half full. Half full of the world, half full of the Holy Ghost. Somewhat full. Damp. No. Certainly not dry, damp, not damp believers, lukewarm believers, whatever you want to think of. Stay full. The church of Acts was full of common believers who directly challenged the world with the gospel and saw signs and wonders as a result. The Bible says in Acts chapter 6 and verse 8, Stephen, who was not an apostle, he was just a uh, waited on tables. He was a, he was a, you'd call a ministry of helps. Not to disparage the ministry of helps, but certainly wasn't an apostle or prophet or someone of, of that kind of spiritual significance, you would think. God obviously doesn't see things that way. The Bible says, Stephen, full of faith and power. Everyone say, full, full. of faith and power. Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Stephen, full of faith and power, did great miracles among the people. Did the great miracles happen because he was Stephen? The great miracles happened because he was full of faith and power. Terry, full of faith and power, did great signs and wonders among the people. Helen, full of faith and power. Marcia, full of faith and power. Hallelujah. Ponce, full of faith and power, did great signs and wonders among the people. John, full of faith and power, did great signs and wonders among the people. Aubrey, full of faith and power, did great signs and wonders among the people. Hallelujah. And I could go on and on, but you get the point. Miracles are not the accessories of special apostles. They are the overflow of faith and power in connection with the gospel. The sign of miracles doesn't happen because of who you are, but because of the position that you put yourself in relative to the gospel. Remember, go 
and put yourself in the position. Common people like Stephen, they put themselves out there where they challenged the world. They got themselves out on a limb where they challenged the world and God with the gospel. And when I say challenge, I'm not talking about being rude or being obnoxious. I'm talking about boldness. Like I said last week, they boldly put the gospel out there. The Lord met those challenges with some sort of sign of miracles. Can you say amen? amen? So for those of you who think that miracles are the special insignia of spiritual generals, think again. The Bible says Stephen, full of faith and power. It doesn't say Stephen who had a great position or a great ministry. It just simply says he was full of faith and power. Hallelujah. Somebody say amen. The third thing I want to say to you about miracles, the, the first is go, the second is stay full, the third is give people something. You are anointed by the Holy Spirit to give people something. Miracles are never going to flow through your life if you don't get into the habit of giving something to people. The Bible says, being full of faith and power, being full of faith and power, miracles happened. Stephen went out and he gave something. And not only Stephen, but in Acts chapter 3 and verse 6, the Bible talks about Peter and John going to the temple at the hour of prayer. As they're going up there, a lame man is begging at the temple gate asking for spare change. And then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You see, when you're full of faith and power, it turns you into a giver. When you are full of faith and power, you give. It makes you want to give. You may not have money to give, but you say, I will give you what I have. Hallelujah. Peter didn't have a special anointing that he gave. He gave the same anointing that you have. He gave the same Jesus you have. He doesn't have a different Jesus. Now listen, man, just think about it. Think about it. Such as I have, I give to you. Well, uh, what, what do you have? And you might be tempted to say, well, I, I just have Jesus. I just have Jesus. Well, Peter just had Jesus. That's all Peter had was Jesus. You have the same just Jesus that Peter had. Somebody say amen. amen. And so being full of faith and power, Peter knew he could give what he had. That's the difference. Peter was full of faith and power, which made him a giver. He knew he could give it. The only difference between you and Peter is that they've probably been less times in your life than there were in Peter's life when you were full of faith and power. And in those moments when you're full of faith and power, you know you can give what you have. It's, miracles don't happen because you don't have it to give. It's because you and I are not filled with enough faith and power to be confident to give. The key is giving. Miracles are connected with giving. Giving. Hallelujah. Such as I have, I give to you. We can study about authority. I could get up and talk about authority. 
But both you and I could leave this church knowing that what the Bible talks about, the Greek word exousia, we have authority through Jesus' name, dunamis, we have power in his name. We could talk about it, preach about it, and then go out to lunch and a person fall over on the table right beside us with a heart attack and none of us reach out and give them the miracle of healing right there on the spot. Not because we don't have it, but we, we are not full of faith and power. So we have no confidence to give it. The miracles occur through the faith and power of releasing, of knowing you have authority to give and giving it. Having been used of God many times to give a miracle of healing that instantly made itself manifest, cancers, diseases, near people near death, all kinds of things I've seen and witnessed in my own life with my own eyes. I can tell you in every one of those personal experiences, I was full, full, not damp, full of faith and power. Faith and power which caused me to just give, just give. Hallelujah. And I know, I know that's the difference. And I know that when I'm not full of faith and power, I can have the theology but I can't give. Amen. And God wants to turn you into a giver. Somebody say amen. amen. Hallelujah. Laying on of hands. Our seventh and final sign that we're going to share this morning. The laying on of hands is not just a religious symbol, but it's the practice of imparting the Holy Spirit's anointing. I want you to get this because this is this is a common mistake. People think that laying on of hands is like spiritual sympathy. That you're sympathizing with someone or you're acknowledging them, making a connection, letting them know you care, whatever it may be. A connection of authority. I give a confirmation to this person, laying, on, laying hands on them. I'm confirming them that they are anointed of God. But the true sign of laying on of hands was way beyond spiritual symbolism. It was a mode of impartation. There was never to, supposed to be a time when you laid hands on and people stayed the same. There was never a time when you laid hands on and, and you just simply confirmed people where they were at. When you laid hands on, you released things and people changed. You understand, this, this sign is a sign of transference, a sign of impartation, hallelujah. And healings were, were released and, and uh, were transmitted and deliverances, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, various ministry gifts were released and were given. The, the purpose of the laying on of hands is the giving, the imparting of whatever it is God wants to anoint somebody else with. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Neglect not the gift that is in you, which was given you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the elders. Do not neglect the gift which was transmitted to you through the laying on of hands. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 6, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, 
the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Let me say that again. When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them. Notice the term came on them. The Holy Ghost was there the whole time. I'm always, I'm always disappointed in teachers that by the time they're done teaching on this kind of stuff, they leave everybody in a very passive position just with the notion that, well, if God wants to do it, God can do it. And if God wants someone full of the Holy Ghost, he'll just fill them with the Holy Ghost. And they take all of the deliberate action out of the believer. God wants you and I to be deliberate. He wants us to act. It's called the book of Acts. Not the book of notions. Not the book of ideas. It's called the book of Acts because the church should be in a mode of acting. These signs all require action on our part. Hallelujah. Can you say amen? amen? And so Paul laid his hands, and the Holy Ghost came on them when Paul laid his hands upon them. Now listen, God certainly could have chosen to impart things to people and bypass the agency of man, not using men. And he probably would have avoided a lot of problems, a lot of bad press. People, you know, once you start allowing your authority, if I were advising God as God's attorney, I might be tempted to say, I don't know that it's a good idea that, that you authorize those people in your name to go out and lay hands and impart things because they have a tendency to manipulate for their own purposes, and they have a tendency to get proud, and they have a tendency, they could, they could, they could bring some, they, they could bring about some things that will come back on you as a bad reputation. But you know what? God decided way before that issue ever came up that it was his plan to do everything he does through us, not around us. It's the whole purpose of redemption to work with us and to work through us. Why does God do that? God does it because in Jesus Christ, he knows the effect and the influence he has over us. He knows that even though we're, we have a tendency to goof up, he knows that we have a, though we have an tendency sometimes to get in the flesh, he can pull us around. He knows his love for us and the power and the effect that his love has on us. So when he gives us his authority and tells us to go lay hands on it and to do these things, he says, I can work through them. Grace can work through them. It, that's why Philippians says in Philippians 2.13, it's God who is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Amen. Hallelujah. Somebody say amen. amen. So while God could certainly bypass us, if he did bypass us, the whole purpose of, of uh, salvation would be lost. Because the whole point of salvation is to show God bringing us into partnership with himself. That's what's wrong, I think, with modern church, where all the activity surrounds one or two or a couple of people who are, quote, the ministry, and everyone else is a spectator. That very setting defeats and undermines the whole message of the gospel. 
as I stand up here and speak to you this morning, I am not projecting to you, even though I'm elevated slightly. That's only for physical purposes. I'm not projecting to you because of any superiority or spiritual superiority that I have. In fact, I am your servant. If you were at a restaurant, I'd be the guy with the apron on, rushing around, clearing your place, bringing the next course of food, picking up silverware that you drop, and making sure that you're served. In other words, God sees it like this, that He wants you to be the one who does all these things. And I'm just helping to encourage you and open you up. You should never be coming in here week by week so that you can learn things. The whole purpose of this is not just to come and learn, it's to be trained. There's a difference between teaching and training. How many of you, when you were in school, said, I don't know why we're learning math, I'm never going to use it. <laughs> or biology, you know, or trigonometry, I'm never going to, and, and try to tell your kids, oh, you'll use it. <laughs> but you're thinking back in your mind, I don't know that I've ever used it since I've gotten out of high school. There's a difference between teaching and training. Even kids, when they're sitting in the classroom, they're thinking, this teaching bores me because to them it's not training. I remember when my son was going through school, we could not get him to work, but we knew he was brilliant. But he was just bored by school because he thought that all of it was just simply teaching and he didn't have any use for it. But when he got out of school and went into the military, his uh, aptitude and his ability to pay attention and to learn was immediately engaged because he was being trained, not taught. Once he realized he was being trained to perform a function, he absorbed like a sponge because everything he was absorbing, he was doing. He was learning it so he could do it. But when he thought he was just, when he thought he was just learning things and there was no doing connected to them, he didn't bother doing homework, he didn't listen, he didn't pay attention. If you asked him a question, he'd be like in a daydream. And you would think, well, he doesn't get it, he's stupid. But he wasn't stupid, he was disengaged. And I really, I, it bothers me that in church, we have an attitude that forces us to be disengaged like, like students who think they're being taught instead of apostles, of prophets, evangelists, and teachers, ministers of the gospel who are coming in week by week being trained because you intend to go out and do this. Somebody say praise the Lord. Amen. Good, good. Hallelujah. Give the Lord a hand clap because that's, that's, that's good stuff. Let me wrap this up and say to you this morning that some people have argued that these signs, the signs of the church, they occurred in the book of Acts in the first century up to 99 or 100 uh, A.D., um, they occurred during the time when the scriptures were being written and compiled. Um, and they were for the special purpose of guiding the church through that time when they didn't have Bibles. But when the Bible came, then there would no longer be the purpose or the need for signs. My argument against that is actually made by the Apostle Paul himself, who in 2 Timothy chapter 3.16 said, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, 
and for correction and training in righteousness. Well, I completely agree. The purpose of the Bible is for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. These signs are not for that purpose. The signs are to tell the world God is in the house. And so even though, where, let me grab a Bible. Even though I've got this Bible, guess what? The unsaved don't walk into churches where there's Bibles all over the place and go, ooh, God is in the house. Just because they got the scriptures, the world all of a sudden didn't, the Roman Empire didn't come crumbling down going, oh, God is in the house. It was through the signs, the supernatural signs, that God said, I am in the house. The scriptures were for the believers to teach and to groom, to curtail, to encourage, and to guide them in righteousness. So the signs of the church of the scriptures serve two completely separate, entirely different purposes. So if anybody tries to tell you that these signs occurred only until the scripture was written, don't listen to them, as best I can tell you. Just don't pay any attention to them. Just ignore them. They obviously don't know what they're talking about. The purpose of the signs of the church still exists today. The need for those signs exists today. The world still needs to know that God is in the house. Can you say amen? Boy, I'll tell you, more now than ever. The, you know, a church without her signs is a poor house offering only religion. When you go into a church with no signs, all they got is the Bible. That's not bad. I don't want to discount or minimize the Bible. But a church without signs for an unsaved person who's bound by the power of darkness, that church is a poor house. The, the house in the book of Acts was a house that was rich and on fire with burning bush presence of Jesus. Hallelujah. And the person who is bound by darkness needs to encounter the power signs of a church. That is the thing that causes those that are bound in darkness to walk in and go, God is here. God is in the house. Can you say amen? amen. I close with this verse. Acts chapter 5.32 The apostles, when they were threatened by the religious leaders to stop preaching in the name of Jesus responded like this. Well, we are His witnesses of these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. All of these signs of the church are manifestations of the work of the Holy Spirit, and God has given those manifestations to those who obey Him. If you want to be one of those that obey the Lord today. God wants those signs to flow through you and I. Praise the Lord. Then let's pray and ask Him for those signs, for the laying on of hands. That, and though we can't pray for angels or to direct angels, you know what we can do? We can be servants of God because angels were always directed to men and women that were out there serving the Lord. Hallelujah. We can put ourselves in that position. The same goes for miracles. God bless you. Let's stand to our feet. I want to pray with you this morning.
And if you've heard any of these things this morning, miracles, laying on of hands, or you want to be one of those people that you are so active for the Lord that while you're out there operating in the natural, even though you're not aware of them, the angels of God are operating around you. In fact, I believe the angels of God integrate what they do with our obedience to the gospel. When we go and sow the word of God, we preach the gospel, we put ourselves out there, the angels of God have got something to do. They've got somebody to work with. They never let you know because they don't have to let you know. They're not there to let you know anything. They're there to do what the Father sends them to do. But I want to live the kind of life that keeps the angels busy. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I want to be the kind of person that keeps the angels busy. And I don't mean chasing me down, trying to drag me back into where I'm supposed to be. I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. And so if you want to be one of those people, hallelujah, I want you to come down to the front. We're going to pray together. We see not our signs, but you know what? We don't have to keep not seeing our signs. We want to see the signs. Hallelujah. Glory to God. If you're hungry, if you're thirsty, if you desire to see those signs, and you might be sitting there saying, well, I've seen those signs in my life. Well, if you want to keep seeing them, come on down. If you want to see more, come on down. If you want to flow in the things of God, come. And let's call on the Lord together. Hallelujah. Just lift your hands to the Lord. And let's say this together. Jesus, I'm yours. My life, all that I possess, I surrender to you. Lord, help me to step up my activity, my life. Help me, Lord, to be full of faith and power so that the signs of miracles can flow through my life. Lord, help me, stir me, convict and encourage me so that my obedience may keep the angels busy. Lord, I want to lay hands on the afflicted, the oppressed, the sick, and give them something. Father, fill me with faith and power. Lord, I surrender everything in my mind that is resistant, every fear, every ounce of rebellion, every bit of indifference. I rebuke that out of my own heart. I pray the fire of the Holy Ghost instead will stir in my heart. Lord, stir me up. Stir me up so that I have something to give. Let the signs, let the signs, let the signs of the church flow through me. Flow through us in Jesus' name. Now may the Lord cause His blessed countenance, His light, His love to shine upon you. May He bless you. May He encourage you. 
May He go before you and lead you in the way that He has ordained for you to go. May you be bold this week and fruitful in Jesus' name. Now before we go, Father, as our nation tomorrow celebrates Independence Day, we stand here before you and recognize your hand in the formation of these United States of America. Father God, we thank you that we had forefathers who though many of them were substantial, noblemen, wealthy, most all of them lost everything they had, had their families killed, laid their own lives down, died in battle. Most all of them had their businesses taken and their fortunes taken and never returned. They paid the ultimate price because they believed that freedom is more important than security. Father, today, I pray that you will help we who have been set free to realize that it is a notion that comes from heaven above that freedom is the most important thing. That we will not fear our security, but trust you. Instead, Lord, that we once again will fight for freedom to preserve it, to be free to fall or to stand, to be free to fail and free to succeed. Father God, we thank you for this heritage. Help us to realize what we have and to be good stewards of it and to encourage others in the same. In the mighty name of Jesus, bless our nation. Give us godly leaders. Deliver us out of the hand of the wicked. Deliver us, Father, from the foolish. Give us those, Father, who will work your will in Jesus' precious name. And help us, Lord, to be responsible unto you and to our neighbors. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. amen. God bless.